And we start the show with breaking news. The Buffalo Bills have just signed ex-Buffalo Bill, Percy Harvin. Ex-Buffalo Bill, ex-Seahawk, ex-Viking, ex-Gator, Percy Harvin. The Tim Tebow Florida Gators were one of the scariest groups of guys headlined by mass murderer, Massachusetts murderer, Aaron Hernandez. And in a locker room that included Aaron Hernandez, the player everyone was most afraid of was actually Percy Harvin. It's amazing how powerful Tim Tebow's presence is off the field, that he could wallpaper over one of the most scandal-ridden programs in NCAA football history. Cam Newton was in that program and was kicked out for stealing a laptop. We don't need Cam Newton. We have Tim Tebow. We're fine. We also have Percy Harvin. Percy Harvin, a college football legend, playing both the running back position and the wide receiver position. Percy Harvin is good at football, but he's not necessarily great at playing wide receiver. That's the difference. Going back through time, we've recommended against... Drafting Percy Harvin at his ADP because in previous seasons, Percy Harvin was one of the more grossly overrated wide receivers. How did we know? 21.4% college dominator, only 24th percentile. Undersized, 5'11", 184, and not a college mega producer. So if you're small and you weren't exceptionally productive at the college level, see Brandon Cooks. You don't have a future in the NFL as a featured receiver. You just don't. Yet, Percy Harvin was being drafted as if he was a featured receiver, something he could never be. And one of the reasons he could never be that in the NFL is because he split time in college between the running back position and the wide receiver position. That stunted his growth as a wide receiver, and those are reps he can never get back. He's not 6'4", 230 pounds, running a 4'4", like Terrell Pryor. There's only one Terrell Pryor who can just pick up the wide receiver position on a whim and become fantasy viable. That doesn't ever happen. It took a Julian Edelman four seasons in the NFL to learn the nuances of the wide receiver position to the degree that would allow him to play it on a regular basis and eventually become a fantasy football asset. It took Terrell Pryor a summer, and it was something that Percy Harvin could never accomplish. He capped out as a WR2 in fantasy, and he'll never be someone you're excited to start in your fantasy football league ever again. But he's back in the league, and he's only 28 years old, and he landed on the franchise you would want a flyer receiver to land on. The Buffalo Bills depth chart has been decimated. When Robert Woods is the number one wide receiver, that's a shallow, friendly depth chart to land on if you're trying to make an immediate impact, as I'm sure Percy Harvin is. And I think Percy Harvin can make an immediate impact because it will take him a day of practice to supplant Justin Hunter and Walter Powell on the depth chart. And Marquise Goodwin is injured. So you can pencil Percy Harvin in as the number two wide receiver on the Buffalo Bills as of Thursday morning. And Percy Harvin has always been known as a temperamental receiver at Florida, in Minnesota, in Seattle, and his previous time in Buffalo was regarded as someone you didn't want to cross and someone that wasn't particularly interested in preparing to play the game of football. He's not a big preparation guy. 
Percy Harvin has natural football ability. And going all the way back to his days at Florida, he's simply been leaning on that natural football ability. You won't read any articles about Percy Harvin's famous off-the-field work ethic. That's not who Percy Harvin is. He's a tough, rough-around-the-edges player who makes electric plays when the lights come on. In some ways, Percy Harvin is like Jeff Janis. When the lights come on, they make plays. Jeff Janis last week posted a 100% catch rate in a touchdown. When Aaron Rodgers throws the ball in Jeff Janis's direction, he often makes plays. When quarterbacks throw the ball in Percy Harvin's direction, he often makes plays. These are great football players. I say that Jeff Janis and Percy Harvin are hashtag good at football because they're versatile. You can play Percy Harvin at running back. You can play Percy Harvin at wide receiver, and you can play Percy Harvin on special teams. If you're a skill position player who also plays on special teams, you're automatically hashtag good at football. That's how I define being good at football. Are you versatile and do you make plays when the lights come on? If that's true, then you're good at football. But if you're one-dimensional and you can't play special teams, you need to be exceptional in your particular role for me to consider you hashtag good at football. And I say that wanting the hashtag good at football to go away as soon as possible. Mike Clay thinks he's being ironic by only tweeting player X is hashtag good at football or player X is hashtag bad at football. And it's not ironic, Mike. It's just lazy, meaningless analysis. That's it. But this is the week to pick up and play Percy Harvin. He doesn't need ramp-up time because he's hashtag good at football. Of all the players on the street that the Buffalo Bills could have signed, Percy Harvin is the most plug-and-play of the available assets because he has natural football instincts. He's just never been a polished player. So you can play Percy Harvin in what is a revenge game for Percy Harvin, quote-unquote revenge game. You see Matt Harmon tweeting that this is a revenge game for Percy Harvin. He thinks he's being ironic too. So many analysts intentionally tweet bad analysis as their vehicle for humor. And I do it too. And it's not funny when I do it either. I wanted desperately for Jimmy Graham to have a productive quote-unquote revenge game last week against New Orleans. It didn't happen. And I've called Jeff Janis hashtag good at football on Twitter. I'm just as guilty as everyone else. Make no mistake, I am one of these nerds that's trying to be funny and failing. And I will be playing Percy Harvin because this is the perfect week for Percy Harvin to arrive on the scene, a plug-and-play asset in week nine when six NFL teams are on by. Larry Fitzgerald, bye! Alshon Jeffrey, bye! Why am I making a sheep sound? Bye! 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 Hey, is that Joey Fatone from the band NSYNC? Bye, 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 bye. Bye, 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 bye. Why do I do that? Why? Julian Edelman. Bye! AJ Green. Bye! Why do I keep doing that? DeAndre Hopkins. Bye! Stop it! Rob Gronkowski. Bye! Stop it! Enough! 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 
and even while he played only a handful of games the last two years before retiring in 2014 and 2015, Percy Harvin averaged 10 fantasy points per game. That's all you're looking for for a bye week replacement. 10 fantasy points per game. Four receptions, 40 yards, and 20 rushing yards. That's what Percy Harvin can bring you, and maybe he breaks a tackle on the 10-yard line and takes a bubble screen into the end zone. That would be a 16-point performance, and that's what we're hoping for from Percy Harvin in Week 9. And we had a buzzard right in. How you like Dak Prescott now, biatch? Really? Biatch? Okay. This was on Twitter. Contact the show on Twitter at Roto Underworld or email us, rotounderworld at gmail.com. I clicked on this Twitter profile and this person's avatar was clearly that of a white man. I made a note of that because I could never imagine myself using the term biatch on social media. I don't see how a Caucasian can get away with that on social media. I just don't see it. I'm just not a biatch guy. Can't get away with it. There are numerous phrases that white people cannot get away with on social media. If you're with your friends and you're quoting a movie, that's one thing. But you can't use the term biatch on social media and feel good about it. I don't think you can. But the buzzards love to circle my head, waiting for me to be wrong, and then play the result. Come screaming down. Beak first. Dive bomb. Yes, Dak Prescott looked tremendous. He looked horrible for three quarters, and then he looked tremendous in the fourth quarter. That was devastating. I had a tweet all queued up to send to John Paulson, a told you so Dak Prescott versus Tony Romo related tweet, and it remains in my drafts on my phone, never to be sent, because Dak Prescott looked good again. Positive production premium on playerprofiler.com. Top 10 passer rating, top 5 total QBR, top 5 yards per attempt, top 5 air yards per attempt, top 5 fantasy points per drop back on playerprofiler.com. Dak Prescott has been efficient across the board, including a top 12 red zone completion percentage and a top 10 deep ball completion percentage. He's taking care of the football. He's helping his team matriculate the ball downfield, and he's not turning it over. That's what you want in your NFL quarterback. He was solidified as the Cowboys starter with or without a healthy Tony Romo. You know that because NFL coaches are risk averse. Most NFL coaching decisions are made out of fear, not because it's the right thing to do, not because it helps the team win. When an NFL coach is making a high-profile public decision, their decision-making process starts with, what is the safest decision that will leave me open to the least criticism if this doesn't go well? Most coaching actions are derived from fear. And the hypocrisy is that coaches often criticize players for being soft, insult the manhood of the player, demand that they be tougher, All the while, NFL coaches are the softest, scaredest actors in all of sports. That's why Tony Romo will be holding a clipboard once he's cleared to play. Not because Dak Prescott is the better quarterback. When you look at their respective bodies of work, 
Tony Romo looks like the better quarterback. Based on the data in front of us, factoring in the size of the sample set, Tony Romo gives the Cowboys the better chance to win, and that doesn't matter because we get very little leadership from the people in leadership positions in the NFL. And because we understand the mechanics behind NFL coaching decisions, we must upstack Dak Prescott in the playerprofiler.com dynasty rankings. And sure enough, after posting 287 yards and two touchdowns with 38 yards rushing and a rushing touchdown, 28 fantasy points, Dak Prescott absolutely rose in the playerprofiler.com quarterback dynasty rankings. Playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings. Went from a top 12 quarterback to a top six quarterback because we can now confidently project Dak Prescott to play out the remainder of the 2016 season because we know NFL coaches are cowards. In a must-win situation, in the clutch time of all clutch time, would Dak Prescott have made that throw to Des Bryant two years ago that should have been a touchdown, that wasn't called a touchdown? Probably not. The Tony Romo brand has been damaged beyond repair over the last decade. Just go to our YouTube channel, search for Tony Romo. You can hear John Paulson and I debate Tony Romo versus Dak Prescott on the last Roto Underworld program, and the comments reveal how badly damaged Tony Romo's brand has become. Yet all Tony Romo has done throughout his career is execute game-winning throws. Can anyone in the audience name a quarterback with more fourth-quarter comebacks than Tony Romo? That's your challenge. Go ahead and tweet us, at Roto Underworld. Name me a quarterback with more fourth-quarter comebacks. So I remain intractable in my position that Tony Romo gives the Cowboys the better chance to win, and it doesn't matter. But there are plenty of football analysts that disagree with me, not just John Paulson, not just the numbers guys, the tape grinders also disagree with me, like Keon Fahey. Yes, Keon Fahey. He blocked me. A handful of high-profile football personalities have blocked me. Thankfully, Johnny Rumford recently unblocked me. I don't know why, but he did. So I'm thankful for that. I don't want to be blocked. It's not my goal. Kean Fahey blocked me because someone else added a hashtag alien time capsule to one of his many ridiculous tweets. And then he found out that I was the originator of hashtag alien time capsule. So he sought me out and blocked me. What kind of psychopathic social media user are you to seek someone out because they are the originator of a hashtag that you didn't like and block them? No one in the fantasy football community has blocked more users than Keon Fahey. So my question is, what does that say about you? If you have more blocks than followers, maybe it's time to look in the mirror. Maybe it's time to go back to your analysis of Sam Bradford and Ryan Tannehill and rethink it. Because it's one thing for me to be intractable in my belief that Tony Romo is an elite quarterback and he gives the Cowboys a better chance to win than rookie fifth rounder Dak Prescott. It's another thing for Keon Fahey to continue to fly the flag for Sam Bradford and Ryan Tannehill intractable in the position that Sam Bradford is a great quarterback, that Ryan Tannehill is also a very good quarterback, but simply betrayed by his supporting cast. 
You can have that position for a season or two, but based on probabilities, a quarterback is eventually going to stumble upon an average supporting cast. That's what Sam Bradford had last year with the Philadelphia Eagles, an average supporting cast. DeMarco Murray, Zach Ertz, Jordan Matthews, Darren Sproles, an average supporting cast. Not great. Not Brandon Marshall, Eric Decker, Matt Forte. No, no, but good. And what did Sam Bradford do? Sam Bradford, who was age 29 and remains outside the playerprofiler.com, top 20 dynasty quarterbacks. Sam Bradford, 2015, negative 7.9 production premium. That's 25th in the league. 86.4 passer rating, also 25th in the league. 41.8 total QBR, 29th in the league. Yards per attempt, 25th in the league. Air yards per attempt, 3.2, 27th in the league. And the worst efficiency metric on the Sam Bradford 2015 resume was fantasy points per dropback, 0.38, 32nd in the league. And yet, Keon Fahey continues to insist that Sam Bradford, in a vacuum, is an elite quarterback. He just needs the right supporting cast to unlock his potential. And he's wrong! But the question is, why does he believe this? Why does someone who studies tens of hours of quarterback film per week believe Sam Bradford, Ryan Tannehill, are at least above average NFL quarterbacks? The reason is, they don't know what they're watching. They don't know what's possible on any given throw. Someone like Keon Fahey sees Sam Bradford and Ryan Tannehill throwing to open receivers underneath. And to him, that looks like a rational decision. It looks like the correct read. But when you pop in the tape of Aaron Rodgers, he's not settling for the open receiver underneath. He's throwing it between two defenders to Jeff Janis in the back of the end zone. And even if you're watching the All-32 tape, you did not see that Jeff Janis was open. Only Aaron Rodgers did. Aaron Rodgers had the courage and the ability to get that ball into the end zone, into Jeff Janis's hands. Ryan Tannehill, Sam Bradford do not have the field awareness or the courage to make that throw. And that's the difference. Sam Bradford and Ryan Tannehill could very well throw the ball farther than Aaron Rodgers and more accurately even. But it doesn't matter if they're not going to pull the trigger on that throw to Jeff Janis in the back of the end zone. Ryan Tannehill is going to continue to pepper Jarvis Landry with five-yard slants. And Sam Bradford is going to continue to feed Kyle Rudolph on seven-yard curl routes. And that's why Ryan Tannehill and Sam Bradford are outside the top 20 on the playerprofiler.com quarterback dynasty rankings. And what did we see from Sam Bradford last night? We saw Sam Bradford doing Sam Bradford on Halloween. That Sam Bradford, who looks like a child wearing a Sam Bradford Halloween costume, would do a Sam Bradford impression on Halloween was the most apropos outcome of the season. And when Sam Bradford's being Sam Bradford, who scores fantasy points? Two players, Stephon Diggs and Kyle Rudolph. That's it. The flanker, Stephon Diggs, runs intermediate routes. And the tight end, who is active over the middle, Kyle Rudolph. The performance you saw from Sam Bradford last night reminded us why Corderell Patterson will never be a trusted weekly fantasy asset. A fantasy asset that you can play on an every week basis. You can never trust the second or third wide receiver 
for a quarterback who is below replacement level. It's why we weren't buying Devontae Parker in any format this year. And I'll admit, when I talked to John Paulson last week, it was because I was excited to see Cordero Patterson receiving five or more targets for three straight games. You give a player with Cordero Patterson's exceptional size-adjusted athleticism Five-plus targets a game. Good things are going to happen. Fantasy points will be scored. And Cordell Patterson had a 20-point week in Week 7 on the road against a stauncher pass defense than what the Vikings faced last night in the Chicago Bears. But it didn't matter because if Sam Bradford decides he's going to dress up as Sam Bradford, Cordell Patterson is not going to be a factor. But Stephon Diggs will be a factor. In a vacuum, Stephon Diggs has a wide receiver one fantasy profile, but on the Vikings, he's a wide receiver two. And if he averages a WR2 performance every week, his fantasy output would have greatly exceeded his cost in trade three days ago. Many of you have joined the concierge program, playerprofiler.com forward slash concierge. That's how you sign up to get live streaming advice from me to help your fantasy team. And the question we received most often was, should I trade Stephon Diggs for Player X? And my advice was, put a moratorium on Stephon Diggs. You cannot trade Stephon Diggs at this point in the season because he had a bad game in week three, got hurt in week four, missed week five, had a bye, was playing hurt in week seven. So there's a natural explanation for why Stephon Diggs has underwhelmed since he broke out in week two with nine receptions for 182 yards and a touchdown. We need to let week eight play out for Stephon Diggs and see what we have. His value is already at a season low. It can't be diminished much more if he underwhelms in week eight. So you're not losing much by waiting a couple days to trade Stephon Diggs. But if you wait a couple days and watch his performance on Monday night and then reassess, you could possibly reap the reward of seeing him excel and watching his value rise after a productive Monday night performance. And that's exactly what happened. We talk about how buy low, sell high is out. Buy high, sell low is in. But you don't sell low on players we know are productive. It's one thing to sell low on Michael Floyd, who has mentally short-circuited in 2016 and hasn't had a thousand-yard season since 2013. Michael Floyd is a sell-low candidate. Dynasty, redraft, you sell Michael Floyd for whatever someone will give you. If someone's willing to chase that upside, let him have Michael Floyd. If you sense that your running back is trending in the wrong direction and he's about to start losing carries, sell. But that's why we have efficiency metrics. So you can go to playerprofiler.com and see, oh, wow, Stephon Diggs has a positive 9.0 production premium, a positive 5.9 target premium, 9.0 yards per target, 67% catch rate, all in the top 40 in the NFL. 15.6 fantasy points per game, it's top 15. This is not a player you sell low on. That's why efficiency metrics exist. So we know what we have. Efficiency metrics give you a window into what you have. What is this player? Meanwhile, Michael Floyd, negative 11.9 production premium, negative 8.7 target premium, and a 6.0 yards per target and a 44.2% catch rate worst in the NFL. That's what a sell low candidate looks like. Stefan Diggs was not a sell low candidate. And this week, you can't sell any Vikings receivers. Why? Because the Detroit Lions give up a lot of fantasy points to wide receivers. One of the worst secondaries in the league 
made worse by a recent injury to the only good player in their secondary, Darius Slay. That's who Minnesota faces this week. So there were a number of reasons why you couldn't trade Stephon Diggs heading into his Week 8 performance against the Chicago Bears. There's only one reason you can't trade Stephon Diggs or Cordell Patterson heading into the Vikings' Week 9 matchup against the Lions. The golden rule of fantasy football trades is you never trade players heading into plum matchups. And a wide receiver facing the Lions secondary is the very definition of a plum matchup. After seeing what Matt Asiata did last night, he is a sell-low candidate. Because Matt Asiata is just a dude. He's a guy. He's a dude guy. That's my new label. I will not be calling running backs Jags any longer. As of today, I will call these average players dude guys. Matt Asiata is a dude guy. In a game Jarek McKinnon did not play, 14 carries, 42 yards. Two receptions on five targets. Just a dude guy. And we've been talking about ability versus situation at the running back position for weeks now. I asked John Paulson about it last week, and he dodged the question. From C.J. Anderson to Kristen Michael to Carlos Hyde to Jay Ajayi. Jay Ajayi! Matt Asiata, Matt Jones, Jordan Howard, Lamar Miller. These are just dude guys. I understand Jordan Howard, 26 carries, 153 yards and a touchdown last night to go along with four receptions on four targets for 49 yards in the passing game. Impressive game for Jordan Howard. I get it. But still, Jordan Howard, just a dude guy. And this is another reason why efficiency matters and why playerprofiler.com exists. You go to playerprofiler.com and you realize, oh, wait, Jordan Howard's measurables are average or below across the board. He's only good at one thing, being big. Evidenced by a 106.8 27th percentile SparkX score, the Nike overarching athleticism metric on playerprofiler.com. He's best comparable to another dude guy, Carlos Hyde. We talked about this with Thomas Rawls over the summer. I compared Thomas Rawls to Jonas Gray, and so many Seahawks fans wanted to fly to Connecticut and drown me in the bathtub. You're not mad at me. You're mad at your dad. I know. Jordan Howard, like Thomas Rawls, has posted three games with more than 100 all-purpose yards in a six-game sample. And yet, in the middle of that stretch, he was benched for Kadeem Carey. Ask yourself, if Todd Gurley had a bad game against Jacksonville, would he be benched for Benny Cunningham? No, because Todd Gurley's not a dude guy. Jordan Howard is. A running back can post 200 yards on any given game. Jonas Gray had 200 yards and four touchdowns. And the only reason he didn't repeat it the next week is because he overslept and was cut. He told Bill Belichick his alarm clock did not go off. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he was Jay Ajayi before Jay Ajayi. He was on his way to back-to-back 200-yard performances. And then the snooze bar bit him. You would have thought that that was the one practice you would never want to miss. Coming off a breakout game. Ready to build a career in the NFL 
fooling both fantasy gamers and NFL general managers into thinking you're hashtag good at football when you're just a dude guy in the right place at the right time like so many running backs are. The serendipity is so strong with some dude guy running backs, they end up as first round fantasy draft picks. Look at Lamar Miller. Matthew Berry ranked Lamar Miller as his number one running back this offseason. Let me say that again. Matthew Berry recommended a skill position player tethered to Brock Osweiler as his number one fantasy running back. Matthew Berry of ESPN, ESPN, who decided to go running back heavy in their overall rankings this preseason and still whiffed because they ranked Lamar Miller and Adrian Peterson in their top five. Oops. How long is ESPN going to stay with those four letters, ESPN? If that fantasy platform whiffs on the running back position in 2017 like they did in 2016, we're going to have to change the name to ESPN. No! But I don't begrudge any fantasy platform ranking multiple running backs in their overall top 10. Times have changed. This was the consistent question that we posed to fantasy analysts this summer. Are we currently in the midst of an RB renaissance and how should that influence our draft concepts and what does that mean for zero RB? And the answer to the question, are we in the midst of an RB renaissance? Absolutely yes. We have a metric on playerprofiler.com, value over stream. What is the player's fantasy points per game above the best waiver wire replacement in the average fantasy football league? The top six players in fantasy football in playerprofiler.com's value over stream metric, David Johnson, Le'Veon Bell, DeMarco Murray, Melvin Gordon, Ezekiel Elliott, LaShawn McCoy. Six running backs in the top six. That's what a running back renaissance looks like. And what do we know about those six running backs? They are exceptional game-breaking talents. We know David Johnson's best comparable player on playerprofiler.com, LaDainian Tomlinson. We called Ezekiel Elliott the best running back prospect since LaDainian Tomlinson this offseason, and he's proving us correct. His best comparable player on playerprofiler.com, Matt Forte. Matt Forte, LaShawn McCoy, and DeMarco Murray are the only all-purpose running backs that have consistently finished in the top 12 fantasy running backs the last five years. And the sixth member of that group is Melvin Gordon, one of the few running backs with first-round draft capital in the last five years. You go multiple drafts with no running backs drafted in the first two rounds. Then in 2015, two running backs go in the first round, Todd Gurley and Melvin Gordon. That's an indication that Melvin Gordon is a special talent, but I've heard zero fantasy analysts come out with the painfully straightforward position that Melvin Gordon is a special talent in his second year in the league after being drafted in the first round, now posting 20.1 fantasy points per game, number four among fantasy football running backs. Me saying Melvin Gordon is an exceptional running back talent is a hot take. That is completely perplexing to me. Look at the Melvin Gordon profile, 47.1% dominator rating, 95th percentile at a major conference school. Almost every running back with a 95th percentile dominator rating or above on playerprofiler.com came from a small program. 
Was he a compiler? No, 7.5 yards per carry. 7.5 yards per carry at Wisconsin, 96th percentile. Also, 8.7 college target share, 60th percentile. So he was active and efficient out of the backfield. Look at his workout metrics. 4.5240 comes out to a 103.0, 69th percentile speed score. Look at speed score, look at burst score, look at agility score, 70th percentile or above for Melvin Gordon. What's not to like? What's wrong with him? Is he small? No, 6'1", 215. Why don't you like Melvin Gordon? Because he was inefficient as a rookie, as most rookie running backs are, including his best comparable player on playerprofiler.com, Matt Forte, who also posted a sub 4-0 yards per carry in his rookie year. That's what we're looking for in a fantasy running back. We just want Matt Forte. If we get LaDainian Tomlinson, that's a bonus. But we're looking for someone that's going to give us 20 fantasy points per game and be active in all phases like Matt Forte. And that's what Melvin Gordon is. And as it turns out, that's what Ezekiel Elliott is too. And when you add David Johnson and Melvin Gordon and Ezekiel Elliott to a player pool that includes LaShawn McCoy and DeMarco Murray, that's how a running back renaissance happens. And when you see this transformation of the running back cohort, you necessarily have to reconsider your draft concepts. I am still a zero RB zealot. This doesn't change my draft concepts for 2017. I will be starting my draft wide receiver times six in 2017. But we've had Davis Maddock and Rich Rebar and J.J. Zacharyson all come on this show and say, we respect wide receivers. We understand that your optimal roster construction is robust wide receiver. We get it. But you can achieve robust wide receiver and still draft a running back in the first round. You can draft Ezekiel Elliott like Evan Silva was doing or David Johnson like Davis Maddock was doing and then follow that up with six straight wide receivers in rounds two through seven. There's not a major difference between that opening draft concept and pure zero RB. And when Davis Maddock, for example, outlined his reasoning for drafting David Johnson in the first round before going wide receiver heavy, you'll recall I didn't push back. I didn't argue with him. Why? Because that was my strategy the year before. My strategy the year before was draft DeMarco Murray in the first round and then go wide receiver heavy. And I was criticized for that. What happened to DeMarco Murray, Matt Kelly? Well, as it turns out, DeMarco Murray's DeMarco Murray. The Eagles' run-blocking efficiency cratered in 2015, and DeMarco Murray suffered multiple lower body injuries. The confluence of those two factors, and on top of that, DeMarco Murray was thrust into a situation where his quarterback, unfortunately, was Sam Bradford. So your quarterback, Sam Bradford, your offensive line can't block anybody, and you're hampered by a litany of lower body injuries. So my draft to Marco Murray in the first round tactic failed. That was the result. But the process was sound because the smart people that implemented my 2015 draft concept in 2016 are killing it. If you drafted David Johnson and then six straight receivers, you're winning. You don't have to go zero RB as long as you consider drafting generational running back talents in round one. David Johnson, Ezekiel Elliott, those are generational running back talents. Lamar Miller is not like the others. Sorry, Matthew Barry. Lamar Miller was a fake bell cow going from a bad situation in Miami to a worse situation in Houston. He wasn't close to deserving a first-round fantasy football investment. But many fantasy gamers listen to Matthew Barry's advice because we've been conditioned to compromise 
at the running back position. We were conditioned to believe that it was okay to compromise at the running back position in the early rounds. Look at some of these pre-running back renaissance fantasy RB1 backs. 2012, C.J. Spiller, Trent Richardson, Steven Ridley. 2013, no Sean Moreno, Reggie Bush, Eddie Lacy, Chris Johnson, Fred Jackson. 2014, Justin Forsett, C.J. Anderson, Jeremy Hill. For years, 2012, 2013, 2015, the NFL draft yielded a running back wasteland. Remember, it wasn't that long ago we were all talking ourselves into Bishop Sankey. And there are a lot of people that think that Carlos Hyde is an elite running back. He's not. When you juxtapose Carlos Hyde with Ezekiel Elliott and David Johnson, you see the disparity. Carlos Hyde, like Thomas Rawls before him, and like the Jordan Howard we have in front of us today, is a dude guy running back capable of stringing together multiple RB1 weeks. The dude guy prototype running back in the NFL is absolutely capable of being the offensive player of the month, of giving fantasy gamers month-long bursts of high-impact fantasy performances. But those running backs cannot repeat those performances all season. That's the difference between a Carlos Hyde and a David Johnson. When Carlos Hyde faces a stout run defense, Carlos Hyde isn't usable. David Johnson is usable every single week. He's matchup proof. Consistent weekly production is how you get over 20 fantasy points per week. That's how you become Le'Veon Bell. And running backs like Carlos Hyde and Jordan Howard do not have 20-plus fantasy point-per-game seasons in their range of outcomes. Why? Because they're dude guys! That's why! The other, David Johnson, is a generational running back talent that is outscoring all wide receivers, and his value over stream is so massive that David Johnson gives your team the ultimate competitive advantage at running back. And that's why so many fantasy teams that drafted David Johnson are currently sitting in first place. If you're going to modify zero RB strategy, you cannot draft a quarterback early, you cannot draft a tight end early, but you can draft a running back early if you take that running back in the first round. He must be a generational talent because the bust rates of running backs drafted in round two and beyond is more than 50%. In round two, you want to draft Mike Evans and T.Y. Hilton. In round three, you want Amari Cooper. In round four, you want to draft Larry Fitzgerald. In round five, you want to draft Michael Crabtree. In round six, you want to draft Stephon Diggs. You don't want any part of the running backs that are available in those rounds. Then when round seven, eight, and nine roll around, you can draft, I don't know, first round mega talent Melvin Gordon.